The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm not surprised at the pace of the Justice Department investigation. They're going to be really deliberate. They don't want to lose any of these cases. This is really huge. When Garland began, when he became attorney general, one of the first things he did is he met with the prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. He commended them for their incredible work, for all of the charges they'd already brought. But then he basically quizzed them and said, can we talk about some of these cases? Why did we charge X? Why did we charge obstruction of Congress? Why did we charge this? And can we meet that at district court and on appeal? I mean, that exercise in my reporting emphasized to prosecutors that this is a long game. I'm Natalie Orpet, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, Monday, January 10th, 2022. Last week marked one year since the January 6th, 2021 attack on Capitol Hill, in which a mob of Trump supporters attacked Congress in an effort to stop the certification of Joe Biden's election as President of the United States. On Thursday, the anniversary itself, Lawfare editors appeared in a Brookings event titled The January 6th Insurrection, One Year Later. Lawfare's editor-in-chief, Benjamin Wittes, moderated a panel that included Lawfare Senior Editor Quinta Jurassic, Lawfare Senior Editor Roger Parloff, Seamus Hughes of the George Washington University's Program on Extremism, and Katie Benner, a New York Times reporter who covers the Department of Justice. On today's Lawfare podcast, we bring you an audio recording of that event, which features discussion of the role of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, Attorney General Garland's recent remarks about the January 6th prosecutions, and what happened with the Capitol Police. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 10th, 2022, the January 6th insurrection, one year later. Let's start on January 7th. Katie, it's the day after, or maybe the afternoon of the insurrection. Thousands of people have been inside the Capitol, uh, breaking things, beating people, uh, trying to obstruct the counting of electoral votes. And uh, because of the oddities of the day and the way it unfolded, all of them have been allowed to leave, which is not what people like me would have predicted uh, if you'd told me that this was going to happen. And mm -hmm. so now the, the poor officials of the Justice Department have thousands of potential criminal suspects spread out all over the country. 
how do you organize a criminal investigation under those circumstances? And what are the what does the early phase of this investigation look like? Sure. So right off the bat, even as the attack was unfolding, you the acting attorney general at the time, Jeff Rosen, his deputies, the acting uh, U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., and the head of the FBI field office here, Steve D'Antuono, they all knew that this was going to be a huge job. They kind of anticipated that it would be a sprawling investigation, and they anticipated that it would also be a massive manhunt. So you saw inside of the U.S. attorney's office at the time, it was run by a man named Michael Sherman. He and the head of his criminal division, John Crabb and others, they scrambled to figure out what is the best way to organize this massive manhunt. The FBI immediately started going through all of the tapes, all of the footage. The attackers, many of them had had load, uploaded to social media video of themselves on that day. There was a lot of immediate evidence to start sifting through. It was a matter of organization. The prosecutors felt strongly that it was important to focus on some of the most high-profile people in the Capitol that day and try to immediately apprehend them in order to send a very strong signal. So that included Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman who we saw wearing the sort of horned helmet and the fur. That included the man wearing the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt, the man who was photographed sitting at Speaker Pelosi's desk with his feet on the desk, the people who were carrying Confederate flags in the Capitol. These people were acting as really powerful symbols to a lot of extremist groups. And I know that Seamus and Roger can both talk more about that. There are people who are becoming symbols of what was quickly being described as an insurrection by a lot of people. And so the prosecutors and the FBI investigators thought to themselves that it was important to really show as a show of force to apprehend those people as soon as possible, to try to mute the idea that they could become symbols of you know, the pro-Trump insurrectionists, which is what they came to be known as, at least within the Justice Department within, amongst officials there. So that was sort of the immediate push. The other thing we saw the Justice Department do, which was really unusual, the DOJ very rarely talks about investigations. They started hosting a series of press conferences. It was for two reasons. One, they were trying to solicit information from the American people saying, do you know anybody who was at the Capitol that day? Do you recognize any of the people who are in this video footage? And if so, we really do need your help. So they were trying to solicit information from the public. Again, I know Seamus has read all these cases, a startling number of them were people who were turned in by, you know, acquaintances, family members, exes, etc. And they were also trying to explain to the American people that this horrible thing they'd just seen unfold on their television screens was being addressed by the federal government and that there was immediate action. So again, which is also very unusual. The third thing that happened that was unusual, in part because of questions from the public and the press, Michael Sherwin, the acting U.S. attorney at the time, specifically said, we are not ruling out anyone in this investigation. It was an important thing to say because there were already people raising questions, including in Congress, what role did the former president, Donald Trump, and his inner circle play in asking people to come to the Capitol on January 6th and encouraging them to, quote unquote, stop the steal? And is that something that the Justice Department should be looking at? It was clear that that the U.S. attorney at the time did not want to foreclose the idea that that could happen. It was a very dicey thing to say, but he said it, and it was another thing that sort of marked the investigation in those early days. All right. So, Seamus, the investigation has now been going on for exactly a year. 
there, the attorney general said yesterday that there have been 720 or so uh, indictments. Uh, what can we say about the uh, group of people who this investigation has netted? What, what you know, there have been a lot of uh, analyses of the uh, indicted community. Uh, what do you think is, how would you describe the 720, other than that they you know, stormed the Capitol, what, what, what can we say about the 720 people who are facing charges? I think what, the first thing off the bat is they're pedestrian in nature, almost typical. Um, so there is um, 705 cases that we've known have been unsealed and arrested. DOJ has talked about 725, so there's a little delay in terms of unsealing documents. Um, the average age is 39, but they range from 18 to 81. They come from 45 different states in D.C., uh, Florida, Pennsylvania, California, punch above their weight in terms of the number of cases. Um, but that's not exclusively so. I mean, they're, they're kind of all over the map on this. A good number of them have pled guilty, about 120, 172 uh, as of this morning. And they're still getting sentenced as we go there. But if you kind of dive into the numbers, like the, the 700 plus cases, like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers get a lot of coverage, uh, understandably so, right? They're wearing their, their camouflage, they're going up the stack formation of the Capitol, they've got all of that happening. But what's also interesting is just kind of the, again, the, the typical pedestrian nature in most of the cases, right? yoga instructor, construction workers, realtor from Texas, kind of all over the map, were not necessarily part of organized groups when they went there. Were drawn to the online space. Many of them, as Katie mentioned, documented their crimes in real time. About 80% of them were arrested with the use of social media. So they didn't think they were doing anything wrong and they were live streaming, um, storming the Capitol because they thought they were, they had a, a warped hero complex uh, on these things. Most of them did not have um, ties to organized groups. And I think that's the most interesting part about it. The other thing is, is the pace hasn't stopped. So we're still averaging, we're averaging about two cases a day since January 6th. Um, the Justice Department has talked about some um, 250 people they're still looking for on their on their be on the lookout website. So we may get to uh, four digit numbers in arrests. The largest investigation in the FBI's history. They're moving agents off of ISIS and white white collar crime cases onto this. Prosecutors are getting pulled from the field to D, to DC to help out. Federal Defender's Office is completely overwhelmed with the number of cases they've got going on. The DC clerk system has never had uh, DC federal courts never had this number of cases. The discovery is huge. So you've got you know, 300,000 tips from the public, 14,000 hours of body cam video and, and cops, and all that information has got to get passed on to the defendants. That's going to be a messy process for a while. And so I think one of the big takeaways from this is we're not quite there in getting the full picture of what the prosecution looks like for January 6th. They're still in the early stages. And, and A.G. Garland talked about it yesterday. Um, you know, he didn't use these terms, but he, he meant it. You know, they're clearing the decks. They're getting rid of the kind of the... the the misdemeanor low-level cases so they can focus on the more complex cases that Rogers been focusing on, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, and pleading out who they can get. So if you look at the sentencing now, it tends to be shorter, but that's a reflection of their misdemeanor cases. They're not felony cases. They tend to be probation, 30 days, 60 days, the, the occasional five years for assaulting a police officer. We're going to get to a longer sentencing at some point. Roger, uh, one of the points at which we will get to longer sentencing is when these Oathkeeper and Proud Boy cases that you uh, wrote about today come to sentencing, assuming they do. Seamus says these cases have, have garnered a, a lot of the attention, though they're not typical. So my question to you is, 
what is it what is it that's important about these two cases uh, or it's actually more than two but two groups of cases and how should we look at the Proud Boys and Oath Keeper cases in relation to the other uh, one six, the hundreds of other, uh, as Seamus says, more pedestrian one six cases? Well, the thing that drew me to them that made them interesting to me, uh, there are only among these 705 that federal cases that have been brought, uh, I mean, brought in federal court, there are only 40 individuals that have been charged with conspiracy, about 40. And uh, almost all of those, about 35 of them, are either Oath Keepers or Proud Boys. Conspiracy, this means that there's only 40 where the, uh, the government felt it could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that these people coordinated with others and uh, uh, had advanced planning to commit crimes on that day. Others were either spontaneous or... Uh, or they went, may have gone uh, to, knowing they wanted to commit a crime, but they did. They weren't coordinating with anybody. So th that made them interesting and important. It seemed also like, and it still does to some extent, that uh, th it's these cases that might hold out the most prospect of uh, sort of leading to evidence that would bridge the so-called, uh, well, what I would call the air gap between the pawns that, uh, you know, the, the people that have been arrested that have actually entered the building and perhaps people that weren't on the ground, but that set the stage for this whole event and uh, the, the people that in lay terms incited it. So I looked at these cases and it turns out uh, that the, the Proud Boy cases are really quite different in a lot of ways from the Oath Keepers. There's a, there's a little evidence uh, of uh, some uh, coordination, not much uh, that we've seen so far, but the Proud Boys cases, uh, and of course, I'm going to rely entirely on allegations. You know, the, uh, nothing's been proven. They haven't gone to uh, court, so everybody could be innocent. But um, the Proud Boys, the, the government's theory and it's convincing uh, on paper is that they played a remarkable role in this in the event that they really seem to have been at crucial points uh, that where the, at the first barricades that were toppled uh, they, they played a role where the first uh, police officers were engaged the among the people that were first to go up the stairs uh, under the inaugural uh, 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 scaffolding. Um, Dominic Pozzola, the, the first to break out a window. Um, the six uh, Proud Boys were among the first to enter the building. Um, so uh, they, they, they really seem to have played, and, and, and there is substantial evidence that they, they really went there planning to do this, that they, they didn't go to the ellipse. They went to the Washington Monument at 10 a.m. And then they moved to a spot east of the Capitol at 1130. And then at 1245, they moved to the Washington, to, to the uh, Peace Monument, which is um, basically where Pennsylvania dead, uh, Avenue dead ends into the Capitol. And it's where the first barricade to be toppled was, which toppled at 12.53, eight minutes later. And uh, there is evidence that the guy who toppled it spoke to a proud boy moments earlier, 
uh, and there's a dispute among them. Apparently, uh, the New York Times reporter Alan Foyer has reported that the man who toppled that first barricade, Ryan Samsel, says that uh, Biggs put him up to it, the proud boy, uh, Joe Biggs. Obviously, Biggs' lawyer denies that. But the, the videotape is is clear. Uh, in fact, there was a remarkable journal story that uh, laid a lot of this out, and, and, the, and the government has relied on the journal story and to some extent, uh, laid a lot of this out in uh, January 26th, which is remarkable reporting 20, 20 days after the event. But, you know, yes, there were obviously a couple thousand people that were came to the Capitol with, with anger that was white hot, that, that had been stirred to frenzy. But, you know, to take that first step, to, to topple a barricade, to, to, to spray uh, police officers with bear spray, you need a few real thugs. And, you know, not everyone on the street is going to take that first step. And uh, the allegations of uh, the government uh, is that uh, in a lot of places, uh, the Proud Boys seem to have taken those first steps. So their role is, is very interesting, very important. The Oath Keepers were really sort of a different phenomenon. I mean, they were r- remarkable on an emblematic level because they all, the, the Proud Boys tried to blend in. They, they actually had instructions in advance from, I mean, allegedly, from the chairman, uh, uh, Tario, Enrique Tario, don't today, uh, don't, on, don't wear your colors. Try to blend in. We're going to go into small, in small teams. These were unusual instructions. They were trying to blend in um, and, and sort of rile up the normies. The Oath Keepers were different. They went in uniform and that was the striking thing about them it was a military operation and it was disciplined and they were all wearing tactical gear uh, goggles and helmets and uh and and the striking emblem of walking up the steps in stacked formation each one with their hand on the shoulder of the cadre in front of him or her um and yet it's less obvious to me i mean clearly they went prepared for violence. They had an arsenal across the river in, uh, at the Comfort Inn in Boston. Uh, and, but what they seem to have been waiting for was a signal from Trump, uh, you know, a formal, uh, th- that he would, quote, unquote, invoke the in- Insurrection Act, or he would call them up uh, like a militia to essentially impose martial law. This is what they hoped. At some point, they seemed to get frustrated that he's he's not giving him that order that the patriots are taking it in their own hands but they're very conscious of when finally this first breach on the west side occurs the one that has been spearheaded in effect by the proud boys and it seems to be uh, it's not clear to me that they would have breached it themselves until they realize okay this is happening this is a go so uh, th- th- they play different roles and uh, that's that's my impression so far. So Quinta, uh, so far we have talked about the uh, criminal side of this, uh, but there's also a political accountability side to the entire enterprise, a year of uh, efforts to, uh, for lack of a better term, tell the story for political purposes, assemble 
the narrative beyond that which can be uh, proven in court, including about people who would not be subject to criminal prosecution and probably shouldn't. Uh, so where are we in that process? How, how do we assess uh, the mostly congressional efforts to do that so far? So as you say, Ben, the, the main actor here is really the House Select Committee on January 6th, which so far uh, has only held one official public hearing in July 2021 with a number of members of the Capitol Police and the DC Metropolitan Police Department hearing testimony from those officers who were at the Capitol that day, many of whom suffered pretty brutal uh, physical and psychological trauma from what happened to them, including one who was uh, shut in a door, uh, one who, uh, or a number of whom experienced racist abuse. And so that was sort of their, their scene setting, uh, their, their way of establishing, you know, here we are, we're, we're beginning this effort toward accountability. Since then, they've received a little bit of criticism for operating a little more under the radar. That doesn't mean that they haven't been been working. Uh, they've sent out a number of subpoenas, a number of information requests to individuals, to social media companies, to telecommunications companies uh, to get information about you know what kinds of conversations were happening, uh, you know, in and around the White House that day, and and in advance of that. But the committee has also said that. In the new year, they're planning to sort of begin a new phase of their work and take what they're doing more into the public eye. Uh, Representative Liz Cheney, who is the leading Republican on the committee, has said that they're planning to hold multiple weeks of public hearings. I think the phrase she used was to bring what happened to the public in living color. Those were her, her words. Um, and there's been some reporting that the committee is also planning to release uh, perhaps a, a series of reports Initially, chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson, had said that he was hoping to release a, a final report by the spring of 2022, which I think, uh, Ben, uh, you, you and I, among other people, had suggested that perhaps that was a little overly ambitious in terms of the time frame. I think the uh, time frame is, the, 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 the technical term for that time frame is delusional. Right. Well, they so they seem to have realized that. Uh, so they've, they've now pushed things back. I think the Washington Post reported that they're planning to release some kind of a, an interim report by the summer um, and then some kind of final report in advance of the November 2022 midterm elections. So they've, they've really been emphasizing that they've done uh, an enormous amount of work so far just in sending out and collecting information. The Times had some interesting reporting on the different teams that are making up the committee's investigative work. So there's a there's a green team which is following money uh, donations that were and money that were used uh, to promote Trump's assertion that he won the election falsely. There's a, a gold team that's investigating Trump's coordination, possible coordination with members of Congress, uh, the Justice Department, other actors to try to overturn the election on the ground. Uh, there is a purple team that's investigating extremist groups. So like uh, Roger and Seamus spoke about the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And then there is uh, a red team that's looking at the people who actually planned the rallies on the ground that were meant to happen on January 6th and the, the Stop to Steal movement. So those are a, a number of different threads. 
Um, I think it will be interesting to see what direction the committee sort of moves in terms of how they tell the story of how those threads interact. Um, and of course, there are a lot of different other things going on that we can also talk about. So one issue that's been of great interest is the question of whether the committee will send any criminal referrals to the Justice Department, which are don't don't have any weight in terms of forcing the Justice Department's hand, but are a, a sort of a nudge uh, suggesting, you know, maybe you should look into criminal charges. Liz Cheney suggested notably that there might be criminal liability on Trump's part personally for obstructing Congress by refusing to call off the rioters um, and therefore delaying the certification of the electoral vote on the 6th. Um, and then there's also been some really notable litigation, um, which we've we've covered a great deal in lawfare when it comes to the committee litigating to get its hands on crucial documents having to do uh, with what Trump was saying, what people in the White House were saying in advance of January 6th. Uh, we're currently waiting on uh, whether or not the Supreme Court will take up a cert petition by Trump uh, appealing a ruling by the DC Circuit saying that the National Archives uh, could hand over material about what was happening in the Trump White House to the committee. Um, I think that that, that ruling uh, by the DC Circuit, if it stands, may be really helpful to the committee in, in getting information going on in the future, both from, from witness testimony and documents, insofar as it really gives the court's kind of stamp of approval uh, to the committee's work and to the, the constitutional and legal basis for the committee's work. So the long and the short of it is that they're very much in the middle of what they're doing. We should know a lot more very shortly about sort of how they're thinking about this and how they plan to present it. Uh, the clock is definitely, but they've notched some notable wins so far, I think most notably in the form of this DC circuit opinion. All right, so I want to, uh, there's a, like a, a meme that uh, goes around with respect to both the Justice Department response and the congressional response. And it's actually the same argument, which is they've been timid and insufficiently aggressive. And, uh, you know, they've gone after uh, small fry people on the Justice Department side or issues on the, on the congressional side. And, uh, they haven't, uh, you know, taken on the big things. So uh, on the Justice Department side, this sounds like uh, they've in indicted a, a whole lot of uh, small fry people who punched cops and none of the political leadership or the people who raised money. Uh, and on the uh, congressional side, it sounds like, okay, yeah, they have this select committee, but that's a fallback from the national commission that they were going to set up. And by the way, that hasn't subpoenaed Trump and it doesn't really have so much ability to uh, compel testimony so people can stiff it. And so I'm interested in everybody's sense of how effective these instruments have been. Um, so uh, Katie, get us started. And then Seamus and Roger, like, has the Justice Department performed about what you would, like, less well than you would have expected under the circumstances, more aggressively and more effectively, or about as effectively as we could have expected about a year out? Uh, I, don't, I don't believe in letter grades, but what does an assessment look like? Katie, 
Seamus, and then Roger. Sure. So I think that, uh, first of all, Merrick Garland was responsive, obliquely, but responsive to some of this criticism in his speech yesterday. He said that, you know, keep in mind, very large, complicated cases almost always begin with the easiest uh, charges, the lowest level charges, the misdemeanors, et cetera, as investigators sift through the, the terabytes and terabytes of information that the Justice Department and FBI have received in order to see whether or not they can build bigger cases. Bigger cases take more time, and he reemphasized that. I'm not surprised at the pace of the Justice Department investigation. They're going to be really deliberate. They don't want to lose any of these cases. This is really huge. When Garland began, when he became attorney general, one of the first things he did is he met with the prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. He commended them for their incredible work, for all of the charges they'd already brought. But then he basically quizzed them and said, can we talk about some of these cases? Why did we charge X? Why did we charge obstruction of Congress? Why did we charge this? And can we meet that at district court and on appeal? I mean, that exercise in my reporting, emphasize to prosecutors that this is a long game. There are no easy wins. Expect everything to be appealed and everything to be challenged. And so when you think about it that way, how do you build a case against people who are sort of higher level in the view of the public? So people who were members of the former president's inner circle, people who organized rallies to quote unquote, stop the steal, even though Trump had been told by his own former attorney general that there was no stop the steal, that the election was valid and that Joe Biden had won. You know, how do you go after those people? I think one thing to think about is how different the congressional investigation that Quinta just described is from a typical Justice Department investigation. At the Justice Department, you cannot have a green team, <laughs> or I don't know which color team, but you can't have a team that just looks at everybody who planned a rally because there is nothing inherently legal about planning a rally. So you can't get process on people just because they planned a rally, just because they funded something. Roger and I, we could fund a big rally tomorrow. And if the thing went out of control and all of the people who, who participated rioted and ripped up half of a city, are we liable for that simply because we funded the rally Right now, no, in the United States, funding a rally, organizing a rally, these are not inherently illegal things. So what you need to do if you are the Justice Department is you need to, from these lower level charges, the things you have been able to thoroughly investigate, see whether or not the process you have there has led you up the chain, right? Did the process on some of these misdemeanor or low, lower level crimes, did the process on the 40 people who Roger has been talking about, Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, did that yield you information that then allows you to go out and get a subpoena on somebody who organized a rally? It is a completely different approach. It has to be from the bottom up for all sorts of legal reasons, including, as Garland noted yesterday, protecting the civil liberties of Americans who right now are allowed to hold even beliefs that most of the public finds odious, that most of the public truly disagrees with, we can have those beliefs in America. We can talk about those beliefs. We can promote those beliefs. So that is a really tricky thing for the Justice Department. Can I just push you on that? Yeah, so, sure. so you listened to the Attorney General's speech yesterday, and he says, we've been super aggressive and you know we've got to be careful on these points and people don't understand the way criminal investigations work. But we've actually, I'm actually really proud of the work that we've done and we're not done. Do you buy that? I, I, I think moving aggressively for the justice department is different from moving aggressively from the court of public opinion. 
So full stop. Aggressively for the Justice Department is never going to satisfy people who are on Twitter who think that Donald Trump should be in jail. And, and that was always going to be a gap. Now, in terms of the work is not done, he was very careful to say this investigation is going to take a long time and the work is not done. And I do believe that. I do believe they're trying very hard to, for example, look at the current conspiracy cases to see if anything more can be made of them. We don't know if people have cooperated and we don't really know what evidence they have. And are there other cases to be made, not directly even related to January 6th, that could come around issues like domestic extremism based on what happened at the Capitol that day. It was described as an enormous crime scene by Michael Sherman when he was the U.S. attorney. And I think that is the correct way to see the attack. Sifting through a crime scene of that enormity is inevitably going to take a long time. Seamus, what do you think? Is, uh, is Garland overstating the magnitude of the department's accomplishment? Uh, when you look back over a year of the department and FBI's conduct in this, do you see uh, a record for them to be proud of? Do you see a work in progress? Do you see a collection of uh, low-grade cases that amount to a collective disappointment? First of all, I would go to a rally that uh, Katie and Roger put on. So whatever you guys want to do, let me know. Um, the other thing is, you know, the the would, attorney would, general, you, would you be one of the people who turned that rally violent or would, we'll you, see. Uh, would you be a peaceful Katie Roger protester that comes out from the times like whatever I need to do it's fine you know you gotta mix it up a little bit so let's talk a little bit about the attorney general is never going to give a speech in front of DOJ saying we're not doing a great job on our investigation so there's that right but I think it's also important to, to put it in context you still have a, a pandemic and a COVID that's slowing down the processes in the courts you still had an acting attorney or an acting U.S. attorney at the time who um, sometimes got a little bit farther in his skis uh, on the way he talked about things, sedition charges, things like that. You have a finite number of U.S. attorneys and AUSAs who can work these cases and a finite number of FBI agents who were still working double shifts and I think still are actually. Um, the largest investigation in its history. And, and when I say largest investigation, like they're getting contractors, they're, they're, they're contracting out to do discovery. Um, because they just have never done this amount of transfer of information in their history. And by the way, Seamus's point here is is really critical. You know, if you're working a case other than a one six case and you get a phone and need it analyzed, uh, there are big delays um, yeah. because the one six cases are sucking up a lot of the resources, the the forensic resources that the department has available to it. And, and this is a separate conversation about whether it's sucking up resources for extremism not related to January 6th, too. So if you've got your expert FBI agents working one six cases, you know, the Boogaloo Boys can hang out. Um, and so that's one thing that we should consider and, and be concerned about. So there's going to be a backlog. I think the wheels of justice go very slowly. Like, look at yesterday. Bob Smith gets arrested um, for trespassing on the Capitol and, and urinating on a, on a column there. And so he pled guilty or he at least gave up his his said, told the FBI he did something wrong on, on November 1st, completely gave it up, got criminally charged yesterday. So that's a two month delay on a very, very, very simple case. Uh, and so you put that in context, it's going to be a while. When I say when, you know, the, the attorney general talks about, you know, we're doing these, these low level cases so we can build a case for the more complex cases. There's truth in that, but the real truth is we're doing these low level cases so we can get them off the books and I don't have to do any more motions on these things. And I can really focus on what I want to focus on. Because right now I got to go back and forth in every filing motion. 
So it, it, we'll get there. We're just not there yet. And I got to be said, having watched the courts for the last 20 years, this is the fastest they've ever moved. And we may get to a point, the one last point I would say is we actually may get to a point where um, some of these defendants get off on a technicality um, because of the slowness of discovery. And this because of the judge's patience is okay right now. And they seem to be wanting to let the process go, but ask them again in a year whether their speedy trial has been hit. Um, and you may get kind of the low level cases where these folks get to walk. Roger, how do you evaluate uh, the Justice Department's performance so far? Well, I, I uh, agree with Katie and Seamus. I mean, it's moved very quickly. Uh, uh, you know, the 700 cases, given all the all of the uphill battle with COVID and and, and everything else, and it's already uh, obtained 20 percent of, of the cases have have pleaded out. And I also agree with Katie that their hands are tied to some extent. They can't do the kind of free-ranging investigation that the select uh, House Select Committee can. They, you know, the, you can't just begin looking into something because you have a hunch that it might be unsavory. So I think they've been uh, sort of waiting for the House Select Committee to to find some stuff for them and and then refer it, but. I am beginning to get a little antsy uh, about the, I, I think that the House Select Committee is already, uh, the evidence is already pretty suspicious about Trump, the number of people begging him to intervene and his not doing it. And uh, the, uh, uh, now this gets to a legal question and I don't think anyone knows the answer. It has multiple obstacles. But whether uh, this is obviously Representative Cheney's theory is that at some point that is uh, becomes a, a crime. He's seeing this uh, uh, attack on democracy going on. He's and for hours, people are begging him to intervene. He's the president. These are the, his people and he won't call them off. And is that corruptly obstructing? Uh, a congressional proceeding, or is that aiding and abetting the corrupt obstruction uh, of, a, of a official proceeding? I think it is, and I, I think it's enough evidence to begin looking. And I think that grand jury subpoenas get more respect than uh, uh, the select House committee uh, subpoenas, and I don't think they have uh, infinite amount of time here. Uh, I think uh, you know they're going to lose the House. Uh, I think that's a real possibility. And so I I, I am beginning to get uh, nervous. Can uh, I just jump in for one moment? Yeah, so please. To get a sense of the pace of it, while we were talking for the last 43 minutes, they've unsealed a new arrest, right? So there are things going on as we talk. And the other thing we I think we should probably touch on is that Department of Justice, the FBI, has, has done some pretty novel investigative techniques in this too. So it's not only the, the public, but think about like the geofencing of phones across everyone that was in the Capitol that pinged against a uh, cell phone or cell phone tower at the time. Going through that data itself, one, it's going to okay. set up. It's so set up precedent. Slow down, Seamus, and explain for the ninety percent of viewers who do not know what geofencing is, what this is, yeah. and why this is novel and interesting in this context. Because I agree with you, this is a super important. Uh, element of this investigation that is 
really reflects the size of the crowd. I think you minimize the the um, intelligence of geofencing Brookings uh, viewers, but I think there's at least 80% there. Um, but so geofencing is is basically you take a location, a, a set location, you use the capital, and you look at every phone that was turned on and pinged against another uh, a close cell tower, and that can tell you everyone that was in that location. Now, when you get that information, you then have to cross-reference it with every congressional staffer, senator, congressman to take them off the list. And then you have a, like a list of a thousand phone numbers because there's a thousand people that were 2000 people that got near there. And then you have to then interview them, see if they cross the legal threshold and go back and forth. Now this geofencing has been used in robbery cases, in arson cases around the country, but not at this level, not at this kind of huge, massive investigation. And so there's been some pushback by um, by defense attorneys on the use of ge geofencing. It hasn't been, been successful in terms of pushback, but if they get lucky on this, if defense attorneys get lucky on this, that sets a precedent for future investigations. And if the Department of Justice gets, a, gets able to get it through, that also sets a precedent. So it has a lot of ramifications. And what you see here is basically the FBI um, using kind of clever tactics on how they do criminal complaints. A lot of the times they're citing public tips but you know, the way I think Katie and Roger and, and the rest of us who read it would be some level of parallel reconstruction or parallel investigations. They're using other law enforcement techniques. And instead of kind of tipping their hand in the court, they're also just using the public um, tips to, to augment it. Right, if you, can, if you can say we knew about person X because his next door neighbor turned him in, that's a much cleaner way to uh, describe it uh, to a court than if you have to litigate the question of uh, that you actually already knew about him because of some more exotic investigative technique. Quinda, is Congress taking a bum rap on its own efforts to ensure accountability here? If you were, uh, I guess there is no Merrick Garland of the Congress, except I suppose Nancy Pelosi, but if you were uh, is there a defense of congressional performance to issues similar to the one that Garland uh, gave in his speech yesterday with respect to the Justice Department? It's an interesting question who the Merrick Garland of, of Congress might be. Um, I think that it's a little harder to say when it comes to the committee precisely because of what I mentioned at the beginning of this event, which is just that they haven't done so much in the public eye in terms of releasing, you know, what their thinking is. We have hints. Um, I think that the the team division is is telling in terms of what they're focusing on. I do think that it's notable that they have been, I would argue, pretty aggressive in terms of going after information. Um, they don't seem to have pulled their punches particularly, so they. Uh, of course, viewers are probably aware, uh, pursued criminal contempt against Steve Bannon, a sort of outside advisor of Trump, which the Justice Department is now prosecuting for Bannon's refusal to comply with information requests with subpoenas from the committee. Uh, they did the same with Trump's White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, which is a, a little more of a complicated case that the Justice Department is now considering. Just the other day, they requested information from uh, Fox host, Sean Hannity, and released uh, in that letter, in the information requests on text messages 
that uh, Hannity sent to uh, folks in the White House, including Mark Meadows, essentially seeming to voice real trepidation about Trump's actions on the 6th and about Trump's refusal to back down from his conspiracy theories about the election after January 6th. And so that speaks to me uh, to a, a willingness to really go hard on, you know, investigating the people who were involved in this. And I think that uh, Cheney's comment suggesting that Trump himself might be criminally culpable for the reasons that Roger sketched out in a little more depth also suggests to me that, you know, they're they're not planning to to hold back particularly. Of course, again, you know, it's it's hard to say without seeing how they're presenting this information publicly, but I don't it doesn't seem so far to me that they're taking a you know a sort of a milk toast approach and trying to make people happy, which I do think is actually one of the advantages of having a select committee over a nonpartisan commission as was originally proposed, where you know if you have a select committee where the vast majority of the Republican Party just completely refuses to engage, that paradoxically I think has kind of freed them to go in, you know, without fear or favor and look for the truth, no matter whether or not it might make, say, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy happy um, or try to soft pedal their conclusions. I, I don't want to completely um, ignore the concerns that some people have raised about, you know, how the committee is conducting the investigation. So I think there's there's been some concern that they haven't been uh, working in the public eye particularly. Uh, we'll we'll see whether the work that they've been doing will sort of answer that uh, those concerns when they when they do begin issuing reports and hearings. Um, I think there's also been some frustrating the public with the the pace of, for example, the criminal contempt proceedings against Bannon and Meadows that those haven't yet you know uh, resulted in any any. Uh, that Bannon hasn't yet, you know, faced real criminal culpability, that Meadows hasn't yet been charged. Um, and to that, I think the only thing to really say is just that Congress is sort of operating at a disadvantage here in terms of what tools it has at its disposal. I mean, we, we mentioned earlier that, you know, perhaps people take grand jury subpoenas a little more seriously than subpoenas from Congress. I think that's representative of how Congress is operating after four years of an administration that really undercut its power to get information and its power to get information speedily. And so part of what the committee is doing here is sort of playing a hand where they seem to be working really hard to get to the truth and to present that truth, but they just don't have the ability to move quite as quickly and aggressively as the Justice Department does just because of the tools that they have in the box. Um, we can talk about ways that they might think about addressing that and fixing those problems. But I think that, you know, some of those concerns that people are voicing may well be legitimate, but speak more to the sort of imbalance when it comes to separation of powers and congressional ability to conduct investigations than it does to the particular way that the committee is choosing to conduct this investigation. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, so I want to zero in on the question that Roger raises of the intersection and interaction between the congressional political investigation and the Justice Department criminal investigation. Because I think the anxiety that Roger describes is a pretty pervasive one that, hey, we're finding out these incredibly damning facts. Uh, and we're learning them because Liz Cheney stands up in a committee business meeting and reads a bunch of text messages from, you know, Laura, uh, what's her name at Fox and from, and when you put those facts all together and you read the text of statutes, boy, it sure sounds like you've got a prima facie at least rubbing up against the text of of uh, the obstruction statute, obstruction of congressional uh, or official proceedings, and you've got some very conspiracy e like behavior, uh, and yet the Justice Department, which presumably has you know is capable of reading Liz Cheney's speeches or listening to her. Uh, and may even have this material on its own, uh, doesn't, you know, race to throw handcuffs around the former president or around other people of the political leadership. So I'm I'm interested, Seamus, I want to start with you and uh, just get everybody who's interested in this question, thoughts on why the congressional investigation why the the criminal investigation doesn't seem to be keeping pace with the facts emerging on the congressional side? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, first of all, it's because you got a lot more freedom as a congressional committee. You know, you don't have a judge that's going to say you can't do that or a grand jury that says that doesn't smell right um, for it. And so, you know, you do have to have go back and forth on, on some subpoenas, but it's not in the level of scrutiny that you're going to have as an assistant U.S. attorney. You know, Garland's speech yesterday was interesting. I think depending on where you sat is how you read it. Uh, and so he talks about, you know, we're going to look at everyone who's been part of, of January 6th, but also people that inspired it and looked at this. And so you could say, OK, he's, he's talking about he's given a wink and a nod to looking at politicians. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is he's doing a wink and a nod towards the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers who were not there on January 6th, who inspired their their believers to do so. And so that Depending on how you read that speech, it goes in a thousand different directions. He's a very clever man, and that whoever wrote that speech is a very clever man or woman. He yep. said a, he he suggested a great deal while while saying virtually nothing that isn't obvious. 
Yeah. And, and the other thing is, if you're going to touch the third rail, which this would be a third rail, right? This is going to, to set off a, a, a thousand hot takes in, in a moment's notice and a lot of different um, lawyers jumping in. You need to clear your bench and get your best AUSAs off of the kind of misdemeanor lower level cases and let them hang out in a room for months at a time. Because what they're going to do is set a precedent and and not only for the, the criminal justice system, but also Department of Justice, you know, how they decide what they want to do this, these cases. It's really, I think it's really going to come down to um, prosecutorial discretion, right? Does A.G. Garland decide he wants, he wants to take this on all the way to its logical end, or does he think he's not going to win it? Or does he kind of weigh the options of the pluses and minuses of what that will mean for not only the courts, for DOJ, but also future investigations for the Justice Department? Katie? I, w- I would agree with what Seamus said. We have a lot of agreement on this panel, by the way. <laughs> I would agree with what Seamus said. Also, I, I think, so taking a step back, Ben, you know, you, there have been a couple of statutes that have been thrown out. I think that the one you're talking about, I'm I'm guessing, is um, USC 1512. I think that's the big one. Obstructing Congress, right? I, I, yeah, so I, 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 I actually think if you were going to realistically bring a case, it would mm-hmm. be an 18 USC 371 conspiracy to mm-hmm. violate 1512. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's the the most plausible avenue. You still yes, conspiracy to violate 1512 because you could argue that if you look at Trump's behavior, he himself did not actually violate 1512, but he could have conspired to. I see what you're saying. Exactly. Okay. So even before Liz Cheney made her public statements in the last few weeks about the evidence that committee had gathered, and even before that committee existed, AUSAs in the DC US Attorney's Office were looking at these very statutes to try to figure out whether or not there was anybody who could have violated them and they could possibly bring a case. So this is not new because Liz Cheney has said it. These are conversations that have been happening quietly within the Justice Department, within the U.S. Attorney's Office, and within the Office of the Deputy Attorney General, which, as we know, oversees the U.S. Attorney's Offices, and within the Office of the Attorney General. And this was before this committee even existed. To Seamus's point, you do not want to bring a case against somebody like Donald Trump on any one of these charges, if you think there is any possible way for it to be defeated. And you know there is no possible way that a case against a former president, especially one as serious as this, is not going to the Supreme Court, particularly this Supreme Court, as it exists now, with the majority that exists and also the the judicial temperament of the justices. This is something to be thinking about as a very long game and a long judicial game. And there's probably nobody who's going to think about that as carefully as Merrick Garland, who we know could have been sitting on that bench himself. He knows all of the appeals judges here in D.C. better than anybody. He knows that this is going to be something that people are scrutinizing, not just as a case against Donald Trump, but they will be scrutinizing as a case against the powers of the presidency and as a case about whether or not there's been overreach in the executive branch. I mean, there are all sorts of things that are going to hang on such a case. This is not going to be something that happens quickly. It's not going to be something that happens, um, and it might not be something that happens in the way that the public wants. So there are two things I'm really cautious about here. One is I don't, I would hate for this to become like a Mueller investigation too, in which the public and pundits say, of course, Donald Trump is going to either go to jail or be removed. Because we saw with the outcome of the Mueller report, that did not happen. 
And it was this huge like public letdown that happened after a public buildup that had nothing to do with anything that the prosecutors who are working on the investigation ever said or did. It was a creation of the public and we can all debate who had blame there. And it was a letdown for the public. But the one thing that didn't happen is that the Mueller team never participated in any of that. We're going to see this Justice Department, especially under someone like Garland, to be just as silent. So what are we going to do publicly? I think it's a big question. And I think part of what we should do is be really responsible and keep in mind the kind of consequences that exist with a case this large. Also, in terms of what's going on with Congress, the interesting that the idea of a congressional referral that cuts both ways, it does help the Justice Department a lot if Congress finds something that they couldn't have found on their own. It can be an enormous help. But as I said, you know, I spoke with Norm Eisen about this. If Congress refers something that's weak, it boxes the Justice Department in because Congress would vote very publicly as they do everything because they want to keep their seats. They want to be reelected. There are all sorts of reasons they'd be very public about the idea of a, of a criminal referral. And then if the Justice Department says this doesn't hold up, that is really, really difficult for the Justice Department. Just one, I want to foot stomp a point that, sure, that sure. Katie made here about um, at the risk of having too much agreement about uh, Garland's particular conservatism coming from his experience with judges uh, knowing all of the judges who were going to hear these things and having knowing the district judges, knowing the circuit judges with whom he served for, you know, 20 plus years, and knowing also uh, many of the, all of the Supreme Court justices, many of whom served with him on the DC circuit. There's another really important Merrick Garland experience uh, that bears on this, and I think cuts in the same direction, which is supervising the Oklahoma City investigation. So that was one of the biggest federal investigations ever before this, uh, not as big as 9-11, but one of the most complicated uh, and far-ranging investigations. And when the bomb went off in Oklahoma City, uh, Attorney General Reno sent Merrick Garland to, to on the ground in Oklahoma City to basically supervise the entire investigation. And the goal of that was to make sure that the prosecution, the investigation was conducted in a fashion and the prosecutions were conducted in a fashion that would be bulletproof against subsequent legal challenge or appeal. And that was a very significant counterterrorism accomplishment that that in fact happened and that the, you know, McVeigh and Nichols cases proceeded and uh, were successful and were not subject to significant appellate challenge. And so I think if you add that to the point that Katie made, this is somebody with experience, not just with the judicial side, but also with how do you do these cases in a way that makes sure they stand up over time. Mm -hmm. uh, it is all going to lead to precisely the kind of conservatism on the political side you, you will not see the Justice Department say or do anything until they have dotted every single I and crossed every single T. Uh, Quinta, yes. your thoughts? I just wanted to circle back to the, the point we were making about um, Congress and the sort of the, the weight of criminal charges. I think it's important just to understand um, as a kind of a meta point that under existing legal doctrine, uh, the Congressional Committee actually can't 
conduct its investigation looking for particular criminal charges that can they can address that if it comes up along the way which it seems like they very much think it has but under the current jurisprudence and especially after the supreme court's uh ruling in trump v mazar is the case about a congressional committee's effort to get Trump's financial documents under the the Trump administration, they need to be acting with a legislative purpose in mind. So essentially building some kind of record that will help the committee work toward a recommendation that perhaps some piece of legislation should be passed or reformed. And we see that in terms of reporting about how the committee is, for example, looking at whether the Electoral Count Act, which is the legislation that guides the certification of the electoral vote should be reformed, whether or not presidential emergency powers should be reformed. So I don't think that that doesn't change anything that we've been saying. And I'm definitely going to continue the the very boring trend of being uh, in agreement with everything that everyone has already said. But I do think that that is uh, some useful context in just understanding why it is that the committee may be conducting its investigation in this particular way um, and that it it has uh, both the the freedom, as everyone has said, to to investigate without having particular criminal charges in mind. But that's because of this sort of this other uh, constraint, this other system um, of constraint under which it's operating. All right, I'm going to start sprinkling in questions from the audience. Uh, uh, Some of these are obvious who they uh, should be directed to and some of them are less so. So to the the panelists, to the extent that you wanna jump in on one of these, just do so. So Casey Cullough, a county commissioner in Yamhill County, Oregon asks, what does accountability look like to the panelists for organizers or cooperators, especially among elected officials, uh, if there is no, he says elliptically, if there is no criminal accountability, is there a path toward declaring some of the organizations in questions, criminal organizations or illegal militias like Greece has done with Golden Dawn? Who wants to take that? Well, on the elected official side, I think, you know, I probably, you know, Roger Seamus or Quinta could talk about the militias and these groups. But on the elected official side, I think this is one of the reasons why you saw Biden today talk a lot about voting rights and why you saw Garland yesterday speak about voting rights and the and what they see as this absolute need for all Americans to have the right to vote. Because if you look at the constitution, the most immediate, powerful and effective check on an elected official is the voter. And so if people are not voting, if people don't have access to the ballot, if their voice in terms of what they think good leadership looks like cannot be heard, suddenly even that check is gone. And so what they're saying is we need robust voting rights and protections to the ballot because if, For example, there is no criminal indictment of members of Congress who people think have helped incite a riot or of the former president. And even if there were a criminal indictment, if it doesn't come for five years, but if even if there's no criminal indictment, the most immediate consequence, the most immediate accountability comes through the ballot box. Seamus, do you want to address the uh, criminal organization side of the question? Yeah, the short answer is is no, there's not much of a redress um, for it. So if you look at the international kind of terrorism side, there's a designated list. The State Department can designate groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, FARC, IRA, that type of thing. When it comes domestically, there's not that mechanism. Uh, And there has been some fits and starts on Congress about providing the U.S. government with that mechanism, but it's it's dead in the water right now. Uh, And so barring kind of a a major attack of, of, of real substance, 
in the US, I don't see the question of kind of designation of domestic groups um, rising to a level that's going to get through. Now, that's separate than whether the FBI internally wants to designate groups as, as groups of concern, which they have the, the ability and, and, and have done in the past. Um, we have seen a, a focus uh, on the Oath Keepers and, and its membership post January 6th that doesn't actually involve January 6th, so individuals who were communicating with them but not there. And so there's going to be a focus on those groups themselves, but not a whole lot of legal mechanisms. Now, what does that mean for the back end issues? So if you don't have a for lack of a better word, a domestic terrorism statute, uh, what it ends up being is the FBI will charge someone with false statements to the FBI, which is a five-year sentence, maybe an eight-year if you get a terrorism enhancement, or the state DA will get in with a gun charge or a drug charge or things like that. And that's all well and good, but it doesn't give you a sense of the scope of the problem in terms of, of asking for more resources from Congress and things like that, because you're not collecting the numbers. It also has back-end issues too. When you put someone in jail for a gun charge, when they're actually truly kind of a white supremacist as part of the Aryan Brotherhood, but no one is told the probation officer when he gets out that they need to be looking for kind of Aryan Brotherhood memoria when they go into their house and they just need to be looking for guns or drugs, that has second and third order effects on these things. Now, the, the last point I would mention is we may be moving away from these kind of group models in general too. So if you look at the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, it's kind of an interesting dynamic and, and Roger would know this better than I, but the Oath Keepers had a larger, probably larger member role, but does not appear to have the resiliency um, after a little bit of limelight from DOJ, right? Um, the Proud Boys had kind of a more national model, have largely moved back to their original setup, which is a local state by state model. And they've had some pretty uh, significant success in terms of resiliency this year. 113 events, I think Vice News reported yesterday. And so if you move more to this local model, you may have some more success as, as these groups go. Roger, do you have thoughts on that, on the, on the relative uh, strength one year later of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers? Not, not well informed. Uh, they are uh, being sued civilly, both a lot of the individuals and, and the entities, to the extent the entities exist. Those are some significant lawsuits. Uh, the uh, uh, some on behalf of uh, injured uh, police officers, uh, the and the District of Columbia uh, is uh, suing. So uh, I don't know exactly how you enforce those judgments and and how easy it is to dissolve those groups and start another. And I know there was some uh, there's been some internal issues with the Proud Boys because it emerged that maybe 10 or 12 years ago, Enrique uh, Tario had served as an informant and uh, some people were angered to find that out and split. But um, I, 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 I don't know uh, uh, beyond that. I, I'm not an expert on that. The one other thing to look at is, you know, organized groups matter as, as Rogers reported in terms of breaching the Capitol. But if you look at extreme domestic extremism in this country, it is not as clear cut as one would hope it would be if you're a law enforcement officer. So white supremacists that are proud boys, proud boys that are not white supremacists, QAnon that are incels, incels that are not. It's just a mess of ideologies. And so the groups matter less. And you see what, what the FBI calls a salad bar approach, right? You're just kind of picking and choosing what you want to see. And those blended ideologies are going to be make it harder for the FBI, both agents and analysts to understand what they're looking for and when someone's going to pop off from rhetoric to violence. And, and the importance of organizations is gonna be less and less important as we go down. 
Yeah, so I think this is an extremely important point, and it actually bears importantly on Casey's question about criminalizing the organizations. Um, so there are serious uh, constitutional prohibitions against uh, criminalizing the organizations. And one of the reasons is that uh, the individual members of those organizations, as well as the organizations themselves, have uh, constitutional free expression and free speech rights. And so these cases date back to the Communist Party cases in the 50s, where the Supreme Court basically said, you cannot criminalize the Communist Party you know, because it is engaged in both legal and illegal activities, and it implicates people's domestic First Amendment rights, uh, unlike a foreign organization like Al Qaeda, you know, of a domestic organization, you know, that's engaged in illegal and illegal activities. And the Proud Boys is engaged in all kinds of legal activities like marching and, you know, espousing uh, white supremacy you cannot criminalize the protected activities of these groups. And that means functionally, uh, unless a group like the, like is an organized crime group that does, that has no legal function, you really cannot uh, ban groups as such. All right, Tom Jones asked a question that I think is on a lot of people's minds, uh, which is uh, when one six happened, there were a lot of uh, videos that appeared to show Capitol Police welcoming and waving in protesters, allowing them inside the building and taking selfies with them. We later learned of a great deal of heroism on the part of Capitol Police. Uh, and so what's the deal with that? Quinta, Seamus, so whoever knows the answer to this, what's the deal with this? Was this a, a miss set of misreportings in the original reporting was this isolated members or was something else going on here i'm happy to take this one um i think the answer is is yes um there the, so part of what you're seeing there is how incredibly confusing it was to see what was going on you know in the moment right where everyone uh for the people who were there there was just an incredible melee uh, for the people who, like me, were not there, it was just a, a lot of different clips of people, um, you know, running around and incredibly hard to figure out what happened. And so I think what the questioner is referring to is there were some instances where people, uh, there, there seemed to be uh, members of the Capitol Police sort of welcoming in insurrectionists, you know, stepping aside to let them by. In some limited instances, it does seem that people, uh, that the those Capitol Police officers were exercising uh, what I think it, we, I can fairly describe as extremely poor judgment and allowing them to come in. Uh, in one instance, an officer, I think, took a selfie with a rioter. Um, there is, I think, the most extreme example, one member of the Capitol Police who has actually been criminally charged for essentially reaching out to somebody who was in the Capitol after the fact and giving him uh, tips and tricks for how to avoid criminal investigation, and including uh, encouraging him to delete evidence online. So that is, that is the extreme. Uh, the Capitol Police has disciplined a handful of officers who were involved in, in some of those other incidents, although I do think it's important to note that I think the officer who is uh, who uh, took the selfie 
um, has said that he was essentially just trying to defuse the situation and wasn't actually sympathetic to the insurrectionists. But that gets that instance, I think, gets to a broader point, which is that some of those instances that people saw online that seemed really, really concerning, I think one of the main ones was uh, Capitol Police officers kind of stepping back from a barrier made out of bike racks on and kind of letting the insurrectionists through to the Capitol uh, looked like they were essentially giving the officers giving the insurrectionists free reign. But in context were sort of moments where the police realized that they were completely overpowered and couldn't do anything. Um, and that their option was kind of to step back or maybe to do something like start shooting, which could have gotten really ugly really, really quickly. So the Capitol Police has, like I said, looked into these incidents and in some instances disciplined officers and other incidents that said, you know, like the, the incidents as with the with the bike racks, that nothing wrong was done. That This doesn't mean that, you know, everybody involved was above reproach. I, I'll channel our uh, Brookings and Laffer colleague Molly Reynolds here and say that uh, Capitol Police is a, a really famously uh, opaque institution. And so I'm definitely not ruling out that, you know, more discipline might be required here. But I do think that um, that that context is is useful. And it also is useful to keep in mind that, you know, a lot of Capitol Police officers, as I mentioned, with the initial hearing um, with the, the select committee, obtained really brutal injuries that day. You know, hundred more than 100 yeah. were assaulted. More exactly. than 140, 140, yeah. So so the situation was incredibly violent. Um, it could have gotten worse really, really quickly. And I think that's important context in understanding some of those videos. Uh, and some of those so officers haven't returned uh, to, you know, they're still on disability. You know, it's a serious injuries. It, it, it didn't all come out initially, but uh, serious injuries. Yeah, so, and I think I'll, Ben, before you go on, I'll, I'll just point to, there's a really incredible piece in the New York Times Magazine that I'd recommend everyone read about the lasting physical and psychological trauma uh, that a lot of officers in Capitol Police sustained that day, which is really, really worth a read. So two related questions about the contingency of these investigative efforts on electoral politics. Uh, Tony Kava asks, are there elements of justice's investigation that will go away, uh, that will go on independent of election results in 2022 or 2024, or is the entire enterprise contingent on electoral politics? And relatedly, Craig Krogstad asks, why wouldn't we expect Trump, if reelected in 2024, to immediately pardon all convicted of January 6th crimes, and he might add all facing uh, ongoing January 6th, the pardon power does not need to wait until after conviction. And why wouldn't he command that all investigations, open investigations be terminated? Uh, so Roger uh, or Katie or Seamus, get us started. What's, uh, uh, how contingent is any or all of this on electoral outcomes? Well, as, as, as certainly, uh, if if Trump were to come back in power, I I, I think uh, all of the federal investigations would be imperiled. Um, we we don't know what that would be a political calculation, but uh, sure he could he could pardon everybody, and there's a lot of anger among his people 
I mean, among the defendants that he hasn't. But uh, I, I don't know exactly what happens. Uh, I would uh, defer to Quinter or others what happens if the if uh, the Republicans take over the House in uh, in, in in the midterms. Yeah, so Quinta, let's separate here the uh, fate of the congressional investigation from the fate of the Justice Department investigation, because I think they are arguably both electorally contingent, though on different elections. So how do you read the uh, contingency of the, the political contingency of the congressional efforts? And then Katie, how do you read the political contingency of the Justice Department investigation? If the Republicans win the House in 2022, which it seems like the the odds are that they will, I think it is almost a certainty, 99.999% that they will shut the committee down. And that's why the committee has a a really tight deadline. Um, And I should say, I think uh, Katie may may get to this, but that's the important distinction between a Congressional Committee investigation and a Justice Department investigation. The nature of Congress is that when different parties come in, they have different priorities. Now, I would definitely prefer if the Republicans consider January 6th a matter that was worthy of continued investigation. Um, but there's no you know, bar on them shutting it down other than what I would argue would be a, a moral failure. Whereas when it comes to the Justice Department, of course, there are a lot of norms uh, involving you know, independent law enforcement and the the necessity in a democracy for law enforcement to be able to investigate these things free of presidential interference that I think would create a lot more consternation. Um, in Congress, it's it's really just a going to be a matter of uh, raw power and moral outrage. Yeah, and on the Justice Department side, if if in the hypothetical world Roger described, where Trump were to win in twenty twenty four. First of all, the amount of time it would take to get a Senate confirmed head of the Justice Department through would be it would be lengthy. I do not think we would see a Senate confirmed attorney general, you know, nominated by Donald Trump sail into the department in February, March, April, May. (laughs) Who knows? And because it's the Justice Department, to Quintus point, the investigations don't stop for elections. They continue. And having lived through the first Trump administration, you can expect career prosecutors to be writing more more than they've ever written before, more memos than they've ever written before, basically chronicling where they are in the investigation, the evidence they found, where they think it's going, basically creating the most complete record you could have of everything that they've, all the work they've done so far in anticipation of interference from the White House. These are people who've now been battle-hardened. They feel like they there have been questions inside when I've talked to career employees they wonder if they could have done more, should have said more, if everybody did what they needed to do to keep their heads down, keep their jobs and hold the place during the Trump administration to get the work done. This, these are going to be people who come in anticipating White House interference and will want to create a very robust paper trail, a record of everything they've done should something happen that would interfere or hurt their work. I mean, this would be this this would not be a group of people who have no idea what they're in for. So I agree with that and also completely disagree with it. Um, And uh, so the part I agree with is I think Katie has accurately described exactly how the career officials at justice would behave. Uh, And there are two major intervening variables that I think would arguably prevent that from mattering all that much. The first is that I think if Donald Trump were reelected, he would be reelected having campaigned 
on the idea that there is some grave injustice that happened on January 6th to all these innocent people. And he would have effectively already promised to make this go away. Uh, and he would have two great instruments to do that. One is the person of the attorney general. Uh, let's assume Katie is correct that it would be very hard to confirm uh, a Matt Whitaker type figure, even in a maybe even in a Congress that doesn't look very much like this one. Uh, he would be able to appoint an acting attorney general and the acting attorney general, as Matt Whitaker did, could make some mischief. That's theory number one. Theory number two is that the, sec the answer to the second question is that there is no impediment to the pardon power being used to nuke all of this. And uh, the famous example of that is Jimmy Carter pardoning en masse all the draft resistors. And so you could imagine a single press release from the president saying, I hereby pardon everybody of all crimes associated with January 6th, and that would be the end of any career prosecutor's aspiration to pursue, continue any case. And so I think I think Katie is is describing exactly right what would happen the day Trump were reelected in November and people realize that at justice and they would all document everything. They would all proceed according to their cases and it would matter exactly as much as Donald Trump wanted it to matter the day uh, he actually took office. All right, I think we have time for one more question and uh, I'm going to uh, give it to Marianne McGrail who asks, uh, do you think the recent jury verdict on civil conspiracy claims against those who instigated violence in Charlottesville under Virginia law will have any influence on the cases brought by DOJ against one six participants? So let me uh, amend that question slightly and say that the, uh, it won't affect DOJ at all, but it may very well affect some of the civil cases that Roger has talked about. And so, and so uh, Roger, uh, uh, what is the prospect of keeping in mind Seamus's point that groups themselves are gonna be less and less important? What is the role of the civil litigation in any of this? Uh, well, it's important both in terms of discovery and, and the discovery process will bring to light uh, independently a, a lot of additional information and uh, e possibly even leading to criminal discoveries. It's a, power, a powerful wallop, the financial power of these. Uh, uh, you can inflict pain um, on the, 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 the people that did this through the, the pocketbook and, and uh, skilled lawyers will uh, go after them and uh, bankrupt them. And, and um, uh, it's, it's a powerful tool. We are going to leave it there on that hopeful civil liability, powerful tool note. Katie Benner, Quinta Jurassic, Seamus Hughes, Roger Parloff, you are all uh, great Americans and thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our audience. Thank you all for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. 
You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents series, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.